Welcome back. We've completed our orbit around the sun, and we're here for another year of space podcasting. For those just joining us, in this Time in Space series of ESA Explores, we're plotting a path through European spaceflight history, starting with the very first Europeans in orbit through to today, with a sneak peek at what's coming next. This. Nie. Otto. Seven. Seis. Fünf. Cztery. It's not just European people who have flown into space. Over the years, Europe has built some impressive pieces of spaceworthy kit. This includes a modular science laboratory known as Space Lab for NASA's Space Shuttle, modules for the International Space Station, including Science Laboratory Columbus and the Cupola Observatory, and five automated transfer vehicles, or ATV. These were expendable cargo spacecraft that delivered supplies and experiments to the space station. The last ATV flew in 2015, but its legacy continues in the European service modules developed for NASA's Orion spacecraft that will travel around the moon. More on that soon. Today, we shift our focus to Europe's involvement with the International Space Station. Right now, the station is humankind's only orbital outpost. It has continuously hosted humans at around 400 kilometers above Earth for over 20 years. 18 of those wonderful humans have been from Europe. It is the world's largest cooperative program in science and technology, and this year we have another two European missions to look forward to. That's the Alpha mission with Thomas Pesquet, and Cosmic Kiss, the first mission of Matthias Maurer. But as we know, Europe is the land of innovators and inventors. Before the space station took flight, a number of other studies were underway as Europe looked for its next role in the future of human space exploration. We spoke to Philippe Berth, the ESA project manager for the European Service Module, or ESM, project. The ESM is ESA's contribution to NASA's moonbound Orion spacecraft. Philippe has had a hand in many spacecraft projects over the years. These include the Hermes spaceplane and the crew rescue or return vehicle. X-38. Though these projects never progressed to flight, both helped ESA develop its programs and set the tone for working with some of our key international partners. Space in Europe was working what's called package deals. Uh, there had been a first uh, package deal in the early 70s, in 73, 74, which was uh, the trio Ariane, Space Lab, and Eureka. The Europeans were trying to elaborate a new package deal, and this new package deal was Ariane 5, Hermes, Columbus. Hermes was a, it was a program which was considered as a next logical step for uh, Europe, I would say. Uh, we, you, you have to place yourself in the late uh, 70s. We had just created Ariane. Ariane 1 had flown, flown in uh, 79, and uh, the shuttle was about to appear. There was a feeling in, in Europe especially in France at the time, because France was the main promoter, that the next logical step after capability to launch uh, satellites with Ariane was to equip Ariane with, with the capability to launch a crew. It was the shuttle era. The idea to build a space plane uh, seemed uh, like the natural uh, solution. So uh, uh, as early as uh, 78, 79, uh, initial studies started at CNES about, for a space plane launched by Ariane, first Ariane 4. And then uh, when it became uh, following project Ariane 5, 
the studies carried out in the 86, there was a initial phase type, phase zero, phase A, and so on. And uh, progressively, in the middle of the 80s, there was a, a so-called Europeanization. Various partnerships were established uh, on Hermes, and it was integrated uh, within the portfolio of uh, European Space Agency programs. Plus itself was made of uh, three major elements. There was the Columbus module as we know it, which was attached to the Space Station Freedom at the time because it was before the time of the ISS. There was the Columbus Free Flyer, uh, which was the so-called MTFF, Man-Tended Free Flyer. There was the, the Columbus Polar Platform, which was platform uh, uh, in polar orbit and which eventually led to NVSAT and uh, METOP. Hermes was uh, intended to have uh, one main mission, which was indeed the servicing of the maintenance free flyer. The maintenance free flyer was serviced in two ways. It was supposed to either attach uh, for a period of time to the Freedom Space Station for maintenance or to be serviced about once a year by Hermes. Uh, Hermes was also capable to uh, visit uh, Space Station Freedom, and there was a secondary mission to uh, visit uh, Mir, the Russian space of the time. The man-tended free flyer, MTFF, was intended to be a small space station built primarily by German and Italian industry under ESA's Columbus program. Felipe also mentions the Freedom Space Station. This was the precursor to the International Space Station. You'll hear more about the evolution from Freedom Space Station to International Space Station later in this episode. One of the major difficulties with Hermes was its weight. In the configuration just before cancellation, Hermes would have carried three astronauts and a 3,000 kilogram pressurized payload. The final launch weight would have been around 21,000 kilograms. This was seen as the upper limit of what an extended, fully fueled Ariane 5 rocket could lift at the time. Adding to the troubles, the Challenger disaster in 1986 meant that many more safety precautions needed to be added. In 1992, the project was cancelled after numerous delays. It was considered that neither cost or performance goals could be achieved. Sadly, no Hermes vehicles were ever built. The crew return vehicle, or the X-38, was a little bit different. This was a partnership with NASA that came after developments with the International Space Station. To learn more about the crew return vehicle, we spoke to Frank Devina. As an ESA astronaut, Frank was the first European commander of the International Space Station, and today, fittingly, he is ESA's International Space Station Program Manager. So I joined ESA in 2000, and we just had formed the unique integrated European Astronaut Corps, uh, which meant that at that moment we were with 16 astronauts in the Corps, which was quite a lot, of course, and we did not have so many flight opportunities. Uh, my Superiors were really asking what, what can we do in anticipation of its uh, space flight. So it was decided that I would move to STEC and with my background as an engineer and a test pilot support X-38 project. Now the X-38 project was basically a precursor of what uh, was supposed to be the crew rescue vehicle. And the space station was built for seven and today with SpaceX and Boeing. Actually, we were going to go to seven crew members, but at that time, it was already envisioned in 2004, 2005 to go to seven crew members. It was still the plan that all the rotations of the crew members would be done by the shuttle spacecraft. 
But of course, the shuttle could not stay there for a very long time to have the crew rescue capability for the crew that you need once you are on orbit. So the CRV was supposed to be launched with the shuttle, taken out of the cargo bay, docked or berthed to the space station, and then served as air, there as the crew rescue vehicle for seven crew members. And in order to test that technology, NASA had decided to start the X-38 program, which in the nomenclature of uh, NASA and the US, the X vehicles are the test vehicles that they will fly. And so the X-38 was a lifting body. Uh, it's actually, if you look today to the Dream Chaser, very much a little bit like the Dream Chaser that is going to fly, uh, hopefully in the next uh, years for cargo. Uh, and I started working on that program, uh, working with NASA on what would be the crew inter uh, interfaces, what would be the displays, uh, what would be the, the landing modes of, of the vehicle, because it was supposed that the vehicle would still land under uh, not a parachute, but a parafoil. So basically a steerable parachute and land somewhere in the desert in uh, Edwards Air Force Base. Then came the crunch. With a change of U.S. administration and budget pressures associated with other elements of the International Space Station, there was a drive on the NASA side to cut costs. It was really a great program. Unfortunately, unilaterally, at a certain moment, NASA decided to cancel the X-38 vehicle. And that was a little bit of a shock, of course, for ESA as well, because uh, we had started to invest significant amount of money from the member states in our joint cooperation. We were doing GNC, we were doing uh, the heat uh, shields for the uh, X-38, the human-machine interfaces. So we had a lot of components, the seats, the, the crew system. So we had a lot of components in the X-38 program that were supposed to be delivered by Europe. And all of a sudden, it got unilaterally can cancelled by NASA. So that has also changed a little bit our way that we are now setting up the barter agreements with our NASA counterparts. For example, when we deliver service modules for the Orion to NASA, the moment we deliver them to NASA, we have fulfilled our obligations and we get the, the credits for it. If then the vehicle flies or not, is not any more problem for, for ESA, that's, that's NASA. So we get the credits once we have delivered the goods and services uh, to NASA. So now we know what didn't happen. It's time to talk about what did. In 1984, US President Ronald Reagan issued a directive to NASA, and it marked the public start of a global partnership. Tonight, I am directing NASA to develop a permanently manned space station and to do it within a decade. A space station will permit quantum leaps in our research in science, communications, in metals, and in life-saving medicines, which can be manufactured only in space. We want our friends to help us meet these challenges and share in their benefits. NASA will invite other countries to participate so we can strengthen peace, build prosperity, and expand freedom for all who share our goals. In July 1988, Reagan further announced that this orbital facility would be called Space Station Freedom. And two months later, the United States, Japan, Canada, and nine ESA member states signed an Intergovernmental Agreement, or IGA, for its construction and utilization. In 1993, President Bill Clinton invited Russia to join the program as a full partner. 
essentially adding modules they had planned for their Mir-2 space station to US, European, Japanese and Canadian elements from Space Station Freedom. This new international outpost would be called the International Space Station. And 10 months after all partners signed an updated intergovernmental agreement, the first element, Russia's Zarya module, was launched into space from Baikonur Cosmodrome in Kazakhstan. There is plenty of information available on the International Space Station itself, especially with November 2020 marking 20 years of continuous human habitation. So we won't go into all that detail here. What we will focus on are the European elements, and for that, we go back to our engineering expert, Alan Thurkettel. Alan was one of the first engineers to work on Spacelab and went on to become the first ESA International Space Station program manager. Spacelab had its challenges, and as you will hear, so too did ESA's work on the International Space Station. Just a quick reminder before we get into it. KSE is NASA's Kennedy Space Center in Florida, JSE is NASA's Johnson Space Center in Texas, and ESTEC is ESA's European Space Research and Technology Center in the Netherlands. He got invited by NASA, in fact by the President, to participate in the, uh, the ISS in the early 80s. We started to put together a team. I came back from uh, KSE, as I said, to ESTEC to, to join in with that quite embryonic team at, uh, at that time. And we felt very comfortable with the idea that, especially people talking about doing a module, that would be fine. We knew what modules were. We'd done the space lab. We launched in the, the shuttle. Well, that would be fine because we launched space lab in shuttle. So we were very comfortable with, with that. But the NASA lead center was Johnson Space Supply Center in, in Houston, whereas the space lab lead center was, uh, was Marshall. Uh, Marshall and Johnson have uh, different ways of doing business. We had to prove ourselves all over again. It didn't matter that we'd done space lab. It was as though they'd, uh, they'd never heard of ESA or even Europe. JSC, don't get me wrong, it's, uh, it's a very, very competent organization. They, they've done uh, a huge amount of terrific work. It was just that they were working differently to what we thought was the way that NASA worked and found it was only the way that Marshall worked. We thought we'd come of age. We thought we knew NASA. We thought we knew what we were doing. And we were starting from square one, basically. But okay, we, uh, we, we got over it. Like, like with Space Lab, it sounds like there was this massive sort of technical gap to, to jump over. And it sounds like with Columbus, there was this documentation, this, this standardization gap that needed to be, to be jumped over. But you did eventually make it with Columbus. And it's been, by, I think, by all measures at this point, more successful than it was expected to be in the beginning. So, so what, what were the expectations for Columbus when finally, let's say, Columbus came together and it was going to station because I believe in, in the beginning, it was the design was for 10 years of operation. We've already blown past that. It went through lots, lots of iterations as well. Firstly, we spent 10 years in phase B. We were invited to join in the, in the early 80s and we didn't get the, uh, the phase CD approval, the design and development approval until 95. So there was a horrendous long period of time where the Europeans simply could not get approval of a program that, uh, that was affordable. Amount of money that uh, that industry were uh, were looking to get to meet the requirements that we were giving them varied from the lowest estimate was four billion to estimates of uh, eight, nine, ten billion, ten billion accounting units before euros. This is yeah. Fortunately, accounting unit and a euro turned out to be the same thing. When Forstel took over from Engstrom a couple of years before a ministerial conference was going to be able to lose in '95. He was a very good politician, fortunately. He was a, he was a marvelous uh, director all around, actually. 
But he had determined that if we could put a program together for 2.4 billion, then we'd get approval. If it was a penny more than 2.4 billion, we would not get the program. The smallest amount that, uh, that we'd had from industry was 4 billion. That didn't include extra money that ESA would uh, spend on his own behalf on top of it as well. So we had to go through quite an exercise to tailor the program down. Columbus itself, for instance, started uh, two years before Toulouse being eight racks long. It ended up being four racks long. We literally cut it in half. Well, the, that gets you to two billion, I suppose, right? <laughs> it's a lot more than Columbus, the ISS, huh? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Included ATB. It includes having to pay for launches. It includes uh, all of the ground centers you would need. It includes all the preparation for operations and the preparation for utilization. So it's, uh, it's a much, much bigger program. Columbus, in fact, at the time the program was approved, had a fixed price contract with industry for 654 million, and the program was 2.4 billion. So Columbus, the flight hardware module, uh, was about a quarter of the, uh, the program. ATB, interestingly enough, was, uh, was 400 million at that time. It ended up being 1.4 billion, but starting out as 400 million. Humble beginnings. Sorry, yes, humble beginnings, yeah, yeah. So we had, we had, to, we had to do a lot to, uh, uh, to, to squeeze the module down, and the module still had to, to meet it, its utilization objectives. We still had to guarantee a certain amount of space for, uh, for users and a certain amount of space for NASA users as well. So we had to uh, compress all of our subsystems and pack them away in areas that uh, we wouldn't otherwise have thought of using. But we had to do it in such a way that it could still be maintained. And that comes into the, uh, the 10 years of life thing. Mm -hmm. Yes, you qualify it for 10 years. You have to qualify it for something. But it's operated by astronauts and uh, astronauts can intervene. And normally they intervene very nicely. If a piece of hardware goes bad, it can be removed and replaced, or it can be repaired on the, on the spot if it's relatively simple. To be able to do that, you need good access to, to everything. You don't want to have to pull everything else apart in order to get down at the box that's misperforming. So with all of this repackaging that, uh, that we had to do to squeeze the module down, still had to meet the accessibility requirements for the functional elements. Because it's maintainable, because it's serviceable, because it's upgradable, I mean, the computers, they're, they're running out of uh, usefulness every couple of years because they're just out of date. So all of those things are uh, being changed around continuously. The uh, things that, uh, that are really susceptible to, to aging are things like the meteoroid and debris protection shields on the outside because right. they are continually being dinged by small particles. But even they can be removed and replaced. Therefore, it, uh, it can go on and on. And Columbus goes on to this very day. As you have heard, the journey from Space Lab to the ISS was anything but simple. There was energy and enthusiasm to spare and plenty of daring ideas for Europe's place in human space exploration. But there was also plenty of processes that needed to be followed, funding that needed to be secured and sometimes held onto, and many other boxes to check. And if you want to go to space, you better be ready for a lot of paperwork. There is so much ground to cover with ESA's contribution to the International Space Station that we are splitting this particular segment of history across multiple episodes. Today, we touched upon a couple of related projects and took you behind the scenes of those early days of development. In the next episode, we'll dive a little bit deeper with a closer look at some of the hardware, most prominently the Columbus Laboratory, and what their launch and operation has meant for Europe, Europeans, and all intrepid space explorers. 
As always, you can find us on Twitter at ESA Spaceflight. Use the hashtag ESA Explorers and let us know what you thought. Also, wherever you listen to us, consider rating and subscribing so that we can reach even more space fans. Thanks for listening and stay tuned.